One of the greatest obstacles to crafting health and wellness is identifying and controlling inflammation. It's at the core of all complex and chronic diseases, and it's the driving mechanism that underlies the most common symptoms that people like you struggle to overcome. Join us as we explore cutting-edge science and research to give you the information and tools you need to create the quality of life you want and deserve. And now, here is the host of Inflammation Nation, Dr. Stephen Noseworthy. So I want to talk about um, I want to talk about inflammation and what it is and, and where it comes from. It's one of those words that I think gets bandied about by healthcare consumers and healthcare practitioners. People who write books and record podcasts like me or blog articles, um, and kind of it kind of loses its flavor. It kind of loses the nuance and, and um, specificity about exactly wh what it means. So um, let's draw a couple of distinctions right away. First of all is that there is, uh, even though they can occur together, there's a distinction between things like inflammation and swelling. Um, you can have a joint, for example, a joint that swells up. Maybe your, your hands get stiff and your, your fingers feel you know, like little tiny sausages and you can't close your hands as well, or maybe you can't slide your wedding ring off as easily. You can be swollen and not inflamed. Swelling is just a, an accumulation of fluid that can be driven by several different mechanisms, some of which also drive inflammation. Inflammation can also drive swelling. You can also be inflamed and not be swollen, but quite often you have both, particularly if you're inflamed in an area where fluid can accumulate, like in your knees or your hips or your ankles, elbows, <laughs> wrists, fingers, and toes. Um, but quite often we get inflamed in areas where fluid doesn't really accumulate. And so how do we deal with that? How do we understand that? Well, let's talk about what inflammation is, where it comes from before we go really much any further. Inflammation is basically the production of what we call inflammatory cytokines. Now there are different types of chemicals and compounds that can create an inflammatory response, but ultimately at the end of the day, what we're talking about is immune produced inflammatory cytokines, things like TNF-alpha, interleukin-6, interleukin-1b. And there's a whole slew of them, but those are probably the ones that are the most commonly researched. And it's not that you need to know, like if you're a, somebody who suffers from uh, some kind of inflammatory disorder, whether it is say rheumatoid arthritis, um, Hashimoto's hypothyroidism, thyroiditis, any type of autoimmunity like MS or type one diabetes, doesn't really matter. Uh, you don't really need to know the names, but it's helpful to understand some of the concepts because we, as we build a little bit of knowledge around what inflammation is, where it comes from, then we can have sensible conversations about what are the driving mechanisms and then what's under my control or your control to change that reality. In other words, how do I know I'm inflamed and what can I do about that? So first and foremost, understand that the immune system produces the majority of inflammatory chemicals, but the immune system is not the only place that inflammatory chemicals can come from. For example, the brain itself or nerve endings that are connected to the brain can actually generate something called substance P, which is pro-inflammatory. And so some people can actually be inflamed, not because they have an autoimmunity, not because they have an infection, 
not because they have something else like a major metabolic issue like insulin resistance that drives the inflammatory cascade. Some people can be inflamed just because their brain's not healthy. And that might be the result of trauma. Uh, maybe it's developmental delays where parts of the brain didn't develop properly, or it could be simply as a result of aging. We have plenty of research in the medical literature that says as we get older, we tend to get more inflamed. Part of that is the accumulation of environmental insults to our immune system, which tends to ramp up its activity to the point where it, it's in a kind of stuck in a profile where it actually makes more inflammation. But part of that is also because as we age, our brain gets older, just like our skin does, just like anything else does. And as the brain ages, we tend to lose control of the immune system. But moreover, we can see activation or lack of control of parts of the brain that can tend to auto-generate inflammation. So you literally can have something called neurogenic inflammation and be inflamed totally in the absence of infection or autoimmunity or tissue trauma. The other thing to understand when it comes to inflammation is where most of it comes from. Like, you know, take the exceptional things like neurogenic inflammation off the table for the moment. If we understand that most immune chemicals and most inflammatory activity is generated by the immune system, where are our immune cells? Well, you've probably heard it said before that about 70% or so of your immune system is in your gut, and that is absolutely true. But we also have a large portion of our immune system that's in the lining of the respiratory system. We also have uh, an immune component to the lining of the vasculature or the blood vessels that dive into the brain and protect the brain environment, what we call the blood-brain barrier. And so there's kind of this intimate interplay between control of inflammation and the function of our barrier systems. Let's step back and define a barrier. A barrier is something that separates two different environments. So for example, my skin is a barrier. It's a barrier that prevents things from being outside me to being inside me. But then we have, I've said this in seminars before, and it usually gets a chuckle or two, but you know, as we as humans are nothing but glorified donuts. We have a, a hole that goes right down through the middle, right? The, from the, the mouth all the way down to the other end, the nether regions, it's just a big old tube. But the lining of that tube, whether it is the esophageal tissue or the lining of the stomach, certainly the lining of the small intestine, is rich in what is called the uh, gut-associated lymphoid tissue, or the G-A-L-T for short, the GALT. And this is where that understanding that 70% of the immune system comes from your gut. That's where this comes from, because the lining of predominantly your intestinal system is this lymphoid or immune-based tissue that is responsible for acting as a barrier so that things that you eat don't get into you to you know, poison you or infect you. And in fact, that, that lining of the gut barrier is responsible for acting like a, um, a very sophisticated filtration system so that certain things are allowed to pass, things like nutrients, vitamins, minerals, proteins, fatty acids, that kind of stuff. Those things are allowed to gain entry to the internal environment, but other things are excluded. Bad actors are excluded. Things like toxins, uh, whether those are toxins that are produced internally or things that we consume. There's a lot of toxins in the food, for example, um, or even things that are uh, bacteria or other viruses. And, and to be honest, and even in this day and age, there's not a single bite of food that you consume that doesn't have something in it 
that wants to poison you or infect you. That's just the reality. So you better have an intact barrier system and you better have a healthy gut mucosal or gut-associated lymphoid tissue if you want to not be inflamed. That doesn't mean that all inflamed people have something called leaky gut. And that's probably another term that you've heard many times. We'll probably dedicate other episodes and discussions to that. But the bottom line is this, is that there are many ways that somebody can become inflamed, but one of the most common ones, and this is certainly uh, kind of a unanimous position in medical research, is when the gut goes bad and we lose that barrier filtration capacity, we might call that leaky gut, and that can that can occur for different reasons. There are different versions of it, and um, it's a spectrum and a continuum. You might have a mildly leaky gut that recovers very quickly, or you may have a somewhat permanent leaky gut that doesn't simply because you have things like, um, let's say, Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, where you actually have your own immune system attacking the, the tissues that make up the barrier system. But let's, why don't we do this? Why don't we put discussion of things like the, the lung barrier system and the blood-brain barrier into a different episode and a different discussion? Just talk a little bit more about this gut-associated lymphoid tissue or the gut barrier. And I don't want to turn this into a discussion about leaky gut as a clinical entity, how you know you have it, how to fix it, and all that kind of stuff. What I want to do is just kind of help you understand why things like having a bad gut tends to bring local as well as systemic inflammation. And that's predominantly because that massive immune tissue that is responsible for creating and generating most of the immune chemicals that we see in the body is basically just underneath the lining of intestines, right? We talked about how there's a tube that goes from my mouth, forgive the language, all the way to my anus, and that that lining is this sophisticated tissue. Well, just underneath that, in what's called the submucosal tissue, that's where we have just this massive population of immune cells, and we have the lymphoid tissue where we see things like T cells and B cells and regulatory T cells. And so if the filter, if the barrier filtration system of the gut fails, and things can start to pass through that filter, trying to get into the bloodstream and then circulate through the body, what ends up happening is that submucosal immune system picks it up. There's a process called dendritic sampling where the immune system is constantly analyzing what's passing through the filter system and going, okay, you're supposed to be here, you can go through it. Well, you're not supposed to be here, what are we gonna do about that? And so these very specialized cells called dendritic cells will constantly sample what's passing through the barrier and make decisions as to whether or not it's going to take something it's found and bring it to a lymph node where there is a, uh, a regulatory T cell also known as a Th3 cell that is literally responsible for deciding if there's going to be an immune response. And depending on the quality and control of the immune system, that regulatory T cell may say, you know, that's not a big deal. Let's not worry about it. And we just kind of go on about our business. But it could actually look at something like, let's say that it's a bacterial toxin, like a lipopolysaccharide, or maybe it's... Um, Maybe it's a virus, or maybe it's a bacteria like Klebsiella that's come from the gut towards the bloodstream. It might go like, holy crap, that's not supposed to be here. And then all of a sudden it starts to marshal all of its defenses so that you can either deal with a toxic factor or you deal with an infection. And part of that process is generating a localized immune response where the infection might lie, i.e. in the gut, 
But the problem is once that system gets triggered, there are a couple of different pathways where it can spill out and actually become systemic. And so you can easily go from having some kind of an inflammatory trigger enter into your gut environment and end up with systemic inflammation, which will manifest in different ways for different people. So for example, somebody might have an inflammatory gut event and, and the consequence actually is brain fog or fatigue. Somebody might have achy joints and, and you know it's fluid accumulation and, and their joints swell up and they can't get their wedding ring off. Somebody else, it might be a disturbance in their circadian rhythm and so they don't sleep properly. What we find is that when someone becomes inflamed, we kind of have the the classic description of if something is inflamed, is inflamed, it's going to be red, it's going to be hot, it's going to be swollen. Yeah, I get that, and that's in all of the medical textbooks. But when you get out into clinical practice, sometimes the textbooks don't tell you everything that you need to know. Sorry to reveal kind of like a dirty secret. But the problem is this, or not the problem is this, is that the point is this, is that when somebody gets inflamed, the inflammation, particularly the stuff that goes systemic, acts as an amplifier for what's already going wrong. So if I already have something that's creating, say, a neuroinflammatory response, and I'm complaining of brain fog or depression, if I have some other trigger that drives more inflammation, I'm going to get more brain fog, more depression, even though something, it wasn't like something new happened in my brain. I could literally eat a food or have a shift in my gut microbiome where I lose control of inflammation. It goes systemic and it just amplifies what's already there. If your problem is typically joint pain and fatigue and you get systemically inflamed, guess what you're going to get? You're going to get more joint pain and more fatigue. And so what we find clinically, and this is one of the things that we teach clinicians in, in the doctor-only seminars that I've taught for, I don't know, 14 years or so, is that we need to be able to understand what are the signs and symptoms of somebody being inflamed because sometimes the blood work just doesn't cut it and doesn't tell us. And then how do we take that and how, would he, how do we translate it into something like a patient or a client? I prefer the term client because patient just kind of has a connotation of sickness and illness all the time. But how do I take my clients and help them understand when they're inflamed, why they're inflamed, how to recognize it early, and how can they have some kind of an action plan to mitigate the, the effect if it happens and preferably to prevent it happening again or at least with some kind of regular frequency. So um, like I said, I'll, I'll, I'll you know, just use another couple of episodes to talk about the impact of things like leaky, leaky lung or leaky brain is just common terms for breakdown of the barrier systems in the respiratory chain as well as the brain environment. And even though this wasn't really a discussion about leaky gut as a clinical entity or problem, you know, I kind of gave you a little bit of a picture of what it means to have a leaky gut. But really the whole point is to understand that most inflammatory events come because the gut mucosal immune system is, is triggered. It's pissed off about something. And that then invokes a systemic inflammatory response that we need to be able to recognize, understand why it promotes certain symptoms and then ultimately build some kind of a repertoire of, well, okay, now I'm inflamed. What do I do about it? Thank you so much for listening to the Inflammation Nation. If you found this episode valuable, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. Be the first to know when a new episode drops so that you can stay on top of your game. It also helps others like you find the answers they need. 
And why not head over to my main website, drnoseworthy.com, that's drnoseworthy.com, to explore my personalized functional medicine coaching programs, submit a question to the podcast, maybe take a quiz, or even reach out to me using the contact form that you can find there. We'll see you next time. Oh,